Tis the season for runners with the holidays right around the corner. Whether you're shopping for your favorite runner in your life or want to treat yourself, Running Warehouse has got you covered with their official 2023 holiday gift guide. Of course, we've got opinions too. Gooder sunglasses are always a go-to for us. They come in endless design options and are something that runners will never argue about having multiple pairs of. The Naked Band isn't just a gift, it's a life changer for the way it lets runners take all things on the run while making it compact and completely unobtrusive. Finally, you've got to go search for the CLA Holiday Cap and Iconic Athletics Folia Color. It's amazing and we love that it exists. New from our favorite headgear company, this hat is both perfect for dead of winter runs and your next Christmas story party all at once. Head over to Running Warehouse's Holiday Gift Guide to check out all this stuff and more. Visit the link in our description or run straight to runningwarehouse.com today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Doctors of Running podcast, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and science of running and the stuff that we put on our feet. I very almost, I was very close to saying, welcome to the Doctors of Running virtual roundtable. Do you remember how we said that? How long did we say, we said that for probably the first two years of the podcast? I think it was the first two years, yes. Yeah. And then we're like, nah, just don't We got to clean it up a little bit. I think... The, I mean, we still have that heart of this sort of podcast where it does feel like a roundtable discussion more than yeah. an exposition on anything in, in general. But yeah, that almost came out of my mouth, but it's been over a year since we've used that title. So just shows where my brain is at today. But everybody, welcome to the Docs of Running podcast. Today, we are going to have another mailbag episode. We've had so many questions from you all that we want to keep trying to walk through them. A lot of these questions uh, that we have today are very... Uh, directed to individual circumstances and situations that people have sent us. Uh, and I think because of that, we want to make sure that we say upfront that this podcast, anything that we put out is not medical advice. These are discussions about the, the topics that get drawn out of these individual situations. So please do not take this as medical advice. If you're having any of these issues and for the people who write into us, we we try to, when we actually respond one-to-one, we like to recommend who might be the best person to go talk to or see. So we just want to give that caveat up front. But again, sorry, I'm Nathan uh, Brown. I'll be hosting today, and I'm here with Dr. Matthew Klein, founder of Doctors of Running. Uh, Matt, thanks for hanging out with me tonight. Always. Yeah, so it should be Dude, fun. We're going to oh, go ahead. For anybody that can is watching this, thank you, Nathan, for organizing uh, the new round of uh, DOR gear from on, which is pretty awesome. I just wore it in a 5K yesterday and it was super comfortable. So oh, good. Putting that together. That's what I was wearing. I'm like, this is awesome. It's yeah, like, it's, it's super nice stuff. And yeah. um, well, we got to thank on too. They they provided us with the the gear. And then we had somebody local here in Stevens Point who did the, the printing for us, point embroidery. So it's, it's great that we kind of have a little bit of a community help on it but yeah we we still haven't figured out a way to get apparel ordered in ways that it could go to the public yet i know people have asked us about that but the reality is we have to be able to get it print it store it ship it and we just don't have the time to do that so maybe if one of you who's listening maybe that's the subject of the day if you have an idea of how we could um, get apparel into people's hands without a lot of work on our end we know there are some ways that do the ship print on demand and they do all the stuff but it's not the quite the material that we'd love for this stuff to be but anyway that's a huge side tangent for the day. Again, we are doing a mailbag. So our subjective of the day actually is if you have a question for us, a topic you want us to talk about, 
please send it to us at docsofrunning at gmail.com or you can comment below in this video and we'd love to get to your questions in time. We love doing these episodes. So we're going to jump right in and we're going to get to this first question from Henry who asked us on Instagram. They, they're asking, hi doctors, a big fan of your work. Other than the pro Evo, it seems that the research and from what you guys wear for your races, that the Alpha Fly is the most efficient shoe for long distance racing. My main question with this is how can Zoom AirPods be more efficient than PBAX foam? There must be so much hysteresis and loss of compression, either by compression and an expansion of the air or from the tensile loading of the plastic sheath. It's also notable that no other company is using air for cushioning. Any thoughts on this? I think there are a ton of, of points within this question, but I think before we even address this question, if we even do, I think we should go back to something we've talked about in the past but haven't for a long time, and that is what is a super shoe and what role does something like the plate have? What, what do you think, Matt? So I'm going to, I will address that. I also, please don't let me forget, the second part was the kind of assumption that the Alpha Fly was the most efficient. And while there are some numbers that might suggest that that is certainly not going to be true for everyone because people, different people are going to respond to different things. That's why not everybody wears it. I've actually never raced in the Alpha Fly. Um, David is choosing other shoes at this point. We'll see with version three, but please remember that just because you see some percentage, that's going to vary quite a bit. So the definition of a super shoe right now is a shoe that's utilizing a combination of several factors. A, it's maximal stack height, B, it's usually using some kind of PBA or PBAX type foam. And then the last kind of general thing is there's, of this max stack height and geometry, is there's usually some kind of stiffening agent, usually a carbon fiber plate throughout the full length of the shoe, usually as we've seen to actually stabilize the uh, foam. Because there's some interesting stuff where people thought the plate was the main thing, which is why for years companies were just putting plates in EVA and calling this super shoe. And like, that's not the right combination. Um, the recent evidence suggests that it more facilitates forward motion and helps stiffen up the, and somewhat maybe stabilizes the right term, but facilitate motion forward with these super soft, unstable foams. Although there is a small piece of efficiency they do add, it's just not the biggest part. But yeah, it's the current definition is max stack height with rocker geometry usually, full-length carbon fire plate. One of the most important factors for making it efficient is the special PBA or PBAX foam usually. I think something with the PBA and PBAX foam, and this kind of goes into his question about the AirPods, right. is that it's not necessarily just that it's PBA. Like that's not necessarily it. But from our conversations with uh, material scientists who understand this stuff way better than we do, it's more about the properties that the foam compound can give you. So right. thinking about um, compliance, resilience, and loss of energy or energy return, um, what sort of percentages can you get from those things? It just so happened, maybe it doesn't just so happen, but PBAX type uh, foam is able to give you those highest properties that give you the energy back that comes from the compression. Um Matt, you'd mentioned that there's only some of it comes from the plate. What sort of studies do we have that show us the plate involvement? Um, and where does that idea come from that it's, you're saying it's not so much the plate that adds efficiency, but yeah. we're, what, what do we know from that from a study perspective? Yeah, so um, I got it. There's several authors that have done this. Uh, Hoochkammer is probably the one that comes most prominently in mind for a couple of things of being some of the original research on the um, – uh, vapor, the original Vaporfly and some of the efficiency studies going, yes, you know, what, what, 
they in that lab did, he in that lab, um, I follow him on Strava, by the way, uh, he sounds like a pretty <laughs> good guy. Um, sounds like from what we discovered, the plates really, they can add based on some previous research up to about 1% efficiency at most improvement. But um it's really the foams that add the most because there was a study that Hoosier Kerber and uh, um, Laura from Puma, Healy, um, yeah, did where they actually cut the plate in the vapor fly and it didn't change the efficiency. So just cutting it once and removing some degree of stiffness didn't seem to make the biggest impact, which kind of suggests it must be something else about the foam and geometry. And some of the other studies that have looked at this um, especially like Dustin Jubert would kind of suggest that the foams play the biggest part, obviously in the right geometry was something so tall and stiff, but the plates, again, they, um, really tend to play more into facilitating motion and they also need to line up correctly. So just cause you have a plate doesn't mean you're going to have an amazing, incredible shoe. It's the curve of the plate, especially in the forefoot, has been shown that it needs to line up with your first metatarsal phalangeal joint, like where it flexes or it pivots to actually be able to have this be the most efficient for you. I don't know why. Why am I forgetting the study uh, where they did the study author uh, McLeod, where they found that it, that there was plates weren't magic. Again, it was is it lining up with your mechanics? And it, that's where the variability in how people respond is some plates are going to work really well for people. Some levels of stickness are going to work really well for people. Other people, it's not. Other people might need something more flexible or the, it's a plate to be in a different direction because you are going to respond uniquely to stiffening agents. And you might benefit, you might not. It's very individual. A lot of it seems, some of it seems to be around the first metatarsal phalangeal joint. But again, the amount that you benefit from with a plate does is not to the same degree as a foam, the bigger question is when you start combining those things, what happens? And that's hasn't been studied. It's just kind of assumed. Right. There's there's somewhat of a magic cocktail that has yeah. to be created for it to actually work that matches the person that's there. There's another study that looked at plate placement, whether it's yeah. closer to the foot or closer to the ground. And what, the closer it was to the ground, if I'm remembering this study correct, it was less uh, had yeah. less of an impact. So the closer it was to the foot, it, it made a difference. Right. Um, or the, and then it had to do with the shaping as well. I think yeah. what else is, uh, is worth talking about too, is that there are, you know, if you're paying attention, the, the running event just happened last week. So we're recording on a Sunday, the third of December. So like last week was the running event, which is where all the, these running shoe companies show all the stuff that's coming out this next year. And a lot of uh, people in our sphere too, that we know go, and then they, they share all these things that are coming. And so again, all of these new shoes are coming, all of these different discussions on plates and what the plate is going to do come out from a marketing perspective as well. And I think it's an interesting conversation to revisit because we're hearing a lot of new things about what these plates are doing in the shoe or what they, or why they may design a plate the way that they do. The reason why I think it's interesting and worth talking about is because as we know so far in the literature, the plate doesn't have the major role, but it does play a role. However, um, in talking with some of the shoe designers, how we are able to harness carbon fiber plates and what sort of designs that they can create and the variability and where it flexes and where it is stiff and all of these things, that's changing. 
So I think that these companies may know things that we don't know about the uh, impact of these running shoes on their athletes. At the same time, it's going to be hard for us to know what those things are in the shoe, in the shoe, in that carbon plate, and maybe how they created excessive stiffness in this region of the shoe. And then they create more flexibility in another region to kind of harness as much efficiency as possible. But I think it's worth considering what we know so far is that it's, it's a necessary but not sufficient piece for running economy. But there are maybe ways that can be developed in the future when it comes to this stuff. I, the one that comes to my mind the most is New Balance because they talk about um, the energy arc and they bend the plate in a certain way that they, excuse me, believe that it'll bend and then return in a way that um, it's not necessarily designed in other shoes. And I just don't know if that's a good idea or if that's mm-hmm. something that they've proven. And we have tried to ask that conversation on this podcast even in an interview with them, but I think they hold it kind of tight to the chest. So I'm just curious. I I will say if you notice, so Nathan and I are experiencing a bunch of FOMO right now where we, we missed out Uh, again. Both of us are in second doctorate to work, both working on our second doctorate degrees. Both of us have kids. I have a 13, 13 and a half week old or, or three and a half month old. Um, so, but I have to give credit to New Balance because the new foams that they're using yep, are all PBAX, PBA infused foams. So I think they may have figured something out. I'm excited. But the other other thing I do want to say is yes, there's still a lot of plate conversations that I understand people are doing a lot. We in the research world are never going to catch up to that because to actually create a appropriate controlled study where we can see these things, we aren't going to have the tools necessary to be able to create that level of stiffness. So it's going to be a lot of anecdotal, like what the companies might know. It's going to take us a while if we ever catch up to that. But I have to give a little shout out because I think companies are starting to talk a little bit more about phones. So obviously New Balance was certainly talking about some new phones. Um, Puma was actually mentioning this because apparently they're using something, please correct me if I'm wrong, that not to, to create more like drama and like, uh, <laughs> but Todd, I think mentioned that they're the new fast R2 is using something that's non PIBA, but it apparently is supposed to have even more resiliency. So I've been waiting for this to going at what point are they going to find the next thing after PIBA and start moving ahead? So I'm just, I don't yeah. know. I might be completely wrong and somebody can comment and tell me I'm, I'm completely wrong, but that's, I swear I heard that. Well, I, yeah, and I've I've had conversations with him that are similar, but I think that the the key there is again, it's not necessarily what type of foam. It's do you get the foam properties and right. the weight? Like, do you get right. both of those things together? Because you can have the best resilience. You could have right. <laughs> Ultra Boost, right, which has really great right. resiliency, but it weighs a ton. So you're not going to get running economy benefits. Yeah. It's just way too heavy. So it's finding that that magic that magic space in between and getting it all to fit together. You know what? I got to add on early. The thing I foolishly forgot is that weight still plays a massive role in economy. The resiliency of the foam has definitely made a big impact on this, but the weight is still a big factor. It's, I think it's like 1% economy improvement per every hundred grams off a shoe. Um, So I think that's why, like, I know people might like the alpha fly, but it's still a bit on the heavier end. Yes, there's a ton of bounce, but stuff like the vapor fly like version three that has an incredibly resilient foam. It's six and a half ounces for men's size. Nine. like that super lightweight plus the stiffening agent plus the geometry. It is the combination of all the factors that has to be gotten that has to be done correctly and not just one. And so um, what's interesting to me, if you have anything on this, because I think we were talking about this. I don't actually know how the AirPods influence efficiency. That's what yeah. I'm really curious about. 
I I would love to to talk with the um with with the scientists within the Nike lab to talk about what sort of statistics and durability they're getting from these things because if you're able to harness, you know, a positive air pressure within these AirPods that can be maintained and that if these sheaths around them are robust enough that they're not stretching, I mean, I can see where that concept could hold up longer and provide a lot of resilience. Um, you, I mean, air has been used in shoes for a long time. I think about like right. the, 80, the 80s even um, yeah. with some of this stuff. So I, I think it's it's a really interesting concept that, again, this is that's not our area of expertise, but I would love to have an opportunity to sit down yeah. with Nike and, and talk with them more about that. Because I think yeah. that's, uh, sorry, Henry, we don't have a robust response to that question regarding the, the AirPods. I'd I'd love to hear more from from the Nike right. team on that, and maybe we'll get to learn more soon. Yeah. Um, I think we had mentioned we had mentioned a little bit about things lining up for for somebody, and I do think a good company that gives you a comparison is Saucony because they have their Endorphin Elite, which is a shoe that David just raced a marathon in today. That's been his for his last two marathons. He's racing the Endorphin Elite. And then they have the Endorphin Pro Three. Which have just very different designs. They have different. They have different foams. They have different geometries. You can see the aggressiveness and later stage rocker of the Endorphin Elite, whereas the Endorphin Pro Three has a much more gradual um, uh, ride to it and or, or rocker to it. You know, for me, I'm going to be rolling with the Endorphin Pro Three every day if my only other option was the Endorphin Elite. I, I have a really hard time getting up on the toe, um, getting over this rocker, just the way that my can, my mechanics work. And so just because this, this has a more technically efficient foam, it doesn't work as well for me in getting in my stride. And I don't know if it works better for me from a running economy perspective. I haven't ran on, like I haven't done any testing with that, but from a comfort level, I would run in this and I have chosen this, um, over, over the endorphin elite because of the comfort level, uh, that comes with that. And, maybe I'm sacrificing some, some running economy, but I think it's important to think about the geometry of the shoe is really important. I think other ones, there are others with that kind of later stage rocker. The Metaspeed Sky is one of them um, a little bit here with the um, Rebellion Pro from Mizuno as well. Just a little bit more of an aggressive later stage rocker. I think I got to add another piece there that I think people want a single thing to focus on here. Oh, what's the yeah. running economy measurement? I'm like, the problem with that is that you're only taking one of the many factors that go into this. Also for a yeah. race, a sh- your shoe choice is one of many, many factors that go into, do you even finish the race, right? Yeah. What's the weather? What's your nutrition? How you feel? All this stuff. So I'm for, you know, you can't, it is okay to look at one thing, go, I'm going to focus on this for the moment, but it's a far more complicated question to go, what's going to work for me? And that comes down to what's most efficient, for you as an individual, I, there's people that out there, they might be kind of more outliers, but there's people out there who go, you know, honestly, I don't work well with super shoes. A lightweight trainer or even a daily trainer is actually going to be the most efficient thing for me because it's also the most comfortable and the thing that people are going to be able to wear for their full, you know, race distance. It's what's going to keep you comfortable. It's what's you're going to, going to help you finish. You're not going to finish well in something that is super uncomfortable over a long distance race. So comfort is something you cannot ignore. And there's some evidence from Ben O'Nig who actually suggests that comfort also plays a part in efficiency. So, you know, it's not just one thing, just because something has a number, you don't know exactly where that number came from, who was tested on, what the population that it was tested on, the population is even relevant to you. 
So comfort and trying to figure out, all right, what kind of components of the shoe work well for me? And then can I get my foot in? Is it comfortable? Can I practice in it? Can I handle it for long enough? It's a more extensive question than what's the economy number? Yeah, that's going to vary. I also think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about Dustin Jobert's recent, more recent studies that look at a lot of the shoes that are currently on the market probably going to be off the market in the next two years because of all the Most new ones that will come out, actually. right? Yeah. So, but like he he did two studies of note. I think they had about 16 runners in the first yep. one. It was a lot of runners running around a six minute pace when they were doing their running economy testing. And that was the study that did show that AlphaFly, um, VaporFly and Metaspeed Sky were at that higher echelon of running economy on average in comparison to some of the other ones, you had some other ones that slotted in behind there, but yeah. Um, And that, yeah, that was endorphin speed too at the time when he did that study. So yeah, that, or endorphin pro too. So yeah, yeah, they haven't even, he hasn't included those in that study. So I, that's from a, from Henry's question, he does talk about the alpha fly being the most efficient that is seen in that study. And for the, the interesting part is Dustin posts on like lab rat rundown. He posts his own, case study stuff, he's a very high responder to the alpha fly. So you're going to see that a lot in terms of it beating out other shoes because that's his best running economy response shoe right now. So I think it's worth just making sure that you understand that that's his case studies, which is separate from his study with like 16 runners running a little bit faster. And then he and um, Jeff Burns had the study that looked at running economy at slower paces. And they found that kind of they'd still benefited, but not quite as much. And then I think the other piece here when it comes to running slower was the stuff that Saucony did within their lab that's not published, um, but they looked at comparing the running economy in the Endorphin Pro 3 in comparison to the Canvara Pro for people running um, at a uh, lighter effort, so not pace. They did it based on effort, and they found the same running economy benefit between these two shoes despite the the Pro uh, Kinvara Pro being heavier, despite it not being full um, full width or all the way from top to bottom, um, based off of PBACs, it's got a dual density thing going on. And I think it, again, it just, it's way more complex than just saying you have the right agent of stiffening, you have the right foam. It's all of the cocktail combined with what sort of purposes you're using the shoe for. And you, yeah. right? And the like, person, what's your yeah. pace, all this kind of stuff. So it's a lot of factors. Totally. Um, do you have any? Do you have any other thoughts about his his notion that you're not seeing other companies use air right now? I think one of my questions is I I can almost guarantee that Nike has some sort of patent or something yeah. on the exact technology here. So your ability to create something that's replicable that doesn't infringe on that might be difficult. So that could be one piece as to why you're not seeing it in other companies. Um, but I don't know if, and I, that's speaking out of my butt. I don't actually know if that's a thing, but I would, I'd be willing to guess. Do you have any other thoughts on why other companies might not be, or if, if you think that's a reason why you wouldn't think that's a beneficial part of the shoe design? I mean, who else has used air in the past of the major players right now? I think Reebok. That's I mean, they're not a major player in the, in this category. They're not creating this kind of shoe. Nobody else has really used that. So that, that makes me think that people are already, it already took people long enough to kind of get their own formulas of P-backs and, and resilient foam. I need to stop saying that super highly resilient foams. It took people long enough. And now most companies have some variation on that. 
I wonder if the effort required to go into that maybe for other companies may not be the the effort's not worth it in terms of maybe they're not they've tried something like that they're not seeing the same benefits. Um, not to shout out Puma again, I think that's where what's interesting is the Fast R having a giant chunk of midsole missing, where it's not an air pod, but there's air right there, right? Things are missing. I think that's the only one I can think of that's doing something unique. Most companies have the fairly simplistic formula of foam plate upper, you know, geometry stuff. So it's a good question, but I, I would agree with you. I would bet money it has to do with some kind of copyright that Nike's just hammered down and nobody's had felt like the need to to copy that and they're use it utilizing other methods but I could be totally wrong and talking out my butt too so yeah also know. just speaking to I think it's interesting if we look back at the last 6 months or year of Doctors of Running and what we've used for races David used I don't think anybody has raced in the second Alpha Fly on no our team no. David ran in the original Alpha Fly um, but once he wasn't in that anymore, he's been running in the Endorphin Elite. Andrew races in the Vaporfly. Um, I raced in the Vaporfly for my most recent longer distance run, the Vaporfly 3. What did you race in? What have you been racing in? I've raced in a combination of the Rocket X 2, the Endorphin Elite, and then just actually yesterday used – actually, I've done two races. My unofficial two-mile race against my students, I used the Vaporfly – Okay. Uh, next percent three. And then just yesterday for the Chino reindeer romp where I got my butt kicked, um, <laughs> used the, uh, Nike Vaporfly three. And I, I can't complain. The, the competitors there were great. Um, yeah. but the Vaporfly three was, was the weapon of choice just to see what it felt like during the fight. Cool. So I haven't really yeah. used anything else. There's been some stuff I've been interested in, but haven't really tried yet. Hoping to race a little bit more this next year, getting the PhD yep. done and can experiment with that but those have been the big ones nice. i mean i guess my other my five miler i ran in the endorphin pro three so yeah, yeah. no alpha no alpha fly two racers at doctors nope. of running bach did his skeleton scurry or whatever or skeleton hustle race and he did the the puma right ah uh, yeah he did it he did the 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 first version one yeah um of the dv so such a comfortable so, shoe oh my such gosh a comfortable shoe yeah um cool well we should probably move forward we spent about 20 minutes on question one here i just thought i it was feel like this podcast is going to be is going to be talking about super shoes again and the uh, other questions <laughs> and then other questions so let's go to one of these other questions yeah uh, and this again is one of those that's a pretty specific situation that we are not giving medical advice for but we want to talk about the, some of the concepts within it so this is from josh and they say dear dor recently had a scarification in osteotomy for a bunion on my left foot currently recovering and trying to decide what the best trainers would be for me to buy to start walking again uh, and to help re reoccurrence of the bunion in that in the future they give a couple more details about themselves um, and they're just wondering if we could suggest a suitable trainer for them based on their needs um, so can we first just start what is a bunion what's a what is an osteotomy what's an akin osteotomy what is the situation that we're dealing with here? Yeah. So an osteotomy or like a bunion, what I, I don't think it's an exact bunionectomy per se, but a bunion is where on your first toe on the, the metatarsophalangeal joint, it is usually a bony outgrowth of the joint and both sometimes the metatarsal and the phalangeal things right here. So if you can see my skeleton uh, foot. So there's some variation on why this can happen. There's some um, endocrine issues that can actually influence this. It can cause swelling of the joint. There's biomechanical issues where the first toe can get pushed uh, 
in in la- outward laterally um and muscles can get stiff there's a muscle called your adductor hallucis that can get stiff your abductor hallucis which is a very important arch muscle if that's weak or maybe overly lengthened can't keep that toe aligned there's some suspicion that maybe again this is a really common thing and we're probably going to catch fire for what I'm about ready to say is that most people will assume that narrow toe boxes will keep your foot in that position. And while mechanically they may keep it in that while you're wearing the shoe, whether that causes lasting changes, we actually don't have longitudinal evidence on. So to be very cautious saying that, but that's kind of the assumption right now. And so the osteotomy is where you actually shave that kind of thing down. And the, the specific version, the scarf akin osteotomy is actually where they take a wedge shaped chunk out of the, the, the proximal phalanx, which is this toe. It's like, of your toe bones, there's two of them. There's a, a end one and a more closer one or called proximal. They take a chunk out of the proximal one to help align things up just because things have gotten pushed over so far. So that's a scarfican osteotomy. Kind of a, a good, a, a complicated procedure that really needs a specialist to do this. Um, and then, yeah, after that, so, you know, just pay, know that you also have bo- significant bone healing too during your rehab process. Yeah. So again, we're not going to try to speak to this person's progress or situation specifically, but I think it's that idea of if I'm dealing with recurrent bunions or I have a bunion or I want to avoid getting one because I have one on one side or whatever, whatever the situation is, I think that's kind of how we're approaching this conversation. Kind of what is a bunion? What are they caused by? And then do shoes play a role and what kind of shoes could we be thinking about? So what what comes to your mind, Matt, yeah. when it comes to shoe choice? Yeah, I do think shoes do play a role. And I want to be cautious to how far I take this because yeah. I think in the past we've been like, oh, you like the widest toe box possible and like, you know, don't have anything pressure on your toes. And I think that assumes that this person has a wide foot. I think for those with a narrow foot, you can still have a toe box that that is appropriate for them. I think what you need to think about instead of just a wide toe box, but you need to have a toe box where your first toe is allowed to stay straight. That might be narrow, that might be wide. You have to look at the shape. So that medial aspect of the shoe needs to not curve in so much for that person. It needs to be far more straight. And a couple companies are starting to pay attention to that outside of ones like Ultra and Topo, which make kind of the widest toe boxes out there. Other companies, there's a couple of them that are starting to pay attention and go, hey, maybe we should make that medial side of the toe a little bit straighter and that might help. So you don't necessarily have to find the widest toe box shoe, but you have to find something that allows your big toe to stay straight. Yeah. Do you have any examples of shoes that are really poorly tapered on that side or have a, have a very excessive taper that you could show us or or discuss with? I'm looking at the shoes I have in front of me too. I do think this is, this could be an example, but you go. Um, I think I'm going to, I'm going to pick on Mizuno for a second. Normally they have really good toe boxes. I think there was Mizuno wave rebellion pro. It fits a half size small. So yeah. this, this curve here example. is really accentuated and felt like my toes were really pushed inwards. So if you see this kind of like big curve inwards here, especially with the shoe that fits short, that's probably not the best option. If you get this a size and a half size up, it's a lot better I'm trying to think what else, what might be a good option? Probably should have had this prep beforehand. No, it's okay. I, I think I think a lot of companies are changing their yeah. their toe box shapes. Like I, a I know lot that better Asics, than what they used to be. Asics shoes fit so different than they did a few years ago. Gosh, They're much yeah. less tapered. Um, Saucony, I think, has done a good job overall decreasing the taper in their shoes and keeping that 
toe box in a place where it allows you to have some splay. Um, I think, I think one of the things that I think about is again, Matt, you kind of mentioned a lot of the potential causes of bunions. Potential. Yes. Potential. We don't, we don't really know. Um, when it comes to the mechanical potential causes, I think one of them to consider is if you are walking or running in a way that has you, maybe your foot points out when you walk or when you're going through, you kind of have this um, kind of increased pressure on the medial side or inside of your foot. And then your weight bearing continually pushes your big toe across uh, as you're going through terminal stance. And that could be something that is, over time, years and years of repetitive loading in that fashion with walking or running, it could lead to potential changes in toward, toward that bunion um, and where you're having that, that hallux move across the foot. That being said, it could be a consideration to choose a shoe that gives you a little bit of assist at terminal stance, which would again come down to a potential stiffer rockered design. Um, Rockers are not this magic thing that fix everything, but they do happen to have some specific applications if you can find a rocker that matches your specific need. So if you notice that you're somebody that you feel a lot of pressure on the inside of your foot, maybe if you get a lot of blisters on that side of your your big toe, on the inside of your big toe, that could be telling you that you're putting a lot of pressure there and you would maybe look for something with a bit more of a stiffer rocker that would give you some of that assist through, especially if you're maybe externally rotating your tibias and you're, you're walking on the, you know, from outside to inside. That was the only other consideration that I had um, outside of the, a toe box, which I, yeah. I need to say this too. I think that, and this is not any of the running shoe companies that we work with, but there are other shoe companies that give you that picture of a foot inside of a toe box that fits really nicely because it's an anatomically shaped toe box and the toes don't touch the edge of that shape of the silhouette of the shoe. And then it puts it next to a silhouette of a more quote unquote traditionally shaped shoe and the toes are like, yeah, yeah. yeah, And they're like overflowing over the edges of this, of this thing. That's where it's like, it's playing with your mind to show you a logical thing that isn't necessarily the case. So just take those pictures with a grain of salt. I'm not saying that you should find these super narrow shoes that always squeeze your toes together. We know that that can lead to a lot of different kinds of issues. Right. You do but want to have I think room. Just, yeah. just don't let that make you think that all these other shoes are bad. Um, that's just not, that's not the case. And it's an exaggeration of reality. I, I think that's a good point. Um, some people will fit really well in those wide shoes with the wide toe boxes. Other people are going to be swimming in them and they're going to get blisters. So it's really trying to find a shoe rather than saying, oh, I need the mo- the widest toe box. It, you need a shoe that fits your foot and gives you enough room. If you have a narrow foot and you're wearing something you're swimming in, you're going to slide around. You're not going to be secure. You're going to get blisters. It's not going to be comfortable. If you're wearing a shoe that's too narrow for you, it will compress your foot. And we do actually have evidence that if you're wearing a shoe that's too narrow, it can compress stuff like some of the nerves in there. There is some risk factors for Morton's neuroma and neuromas. So yes, it's a balance of finding a shoe that fits your foot. Not necessarily that you need this perfect anatomic thing every time. And what's great is that companies are making shoes where the the forefoot is doing better. It's so we just mentioned this earlier. The sh- the, the forefoot of shoes is so much better than it used to be. Yes. Like I'm impressed. Like I when I put the Vaporfly on, that this shoe has so much volume in the forefoot and so much. Yeah. It's like wow, there's actually a lot of room. Like I would have never, if you told me this years ago, I would have never assumed there'd be this much room in a racing shoe in the forefoot. And so. 
makes sense because long, over a long race, you don't want your foot getting compressed because that's going to cause some issues. If you're get if your foot's going numb, there's too much pressure and that's not a good shoe for you. But, yep. you know, I think companies are doing a lot better. Yep, so there's a lot more options out there for finding a shoe that fits you. But don't assume that you need a quote unquote super wide natural shoe. Some people do really well on them. I love walking around in those shoes. I don't necessarily always like running in them because I feel like I need more security. So that's another, uh, just a, an anecdotal example of how shoes are tools. There's no perfect tool and trying to find what works for you is kind of the key. I think uh, two companies that pop into my head as maybe narrow foot friendly companies. <laughs> meaning oh, that's they might interesting. Have a little yeah, bit, I like that. Yeah. A little bit more narrow, uh, maybe not most appropriate for people who want, who need a little bit more width or are having this issue that this person brought up with the question but those two companies for me are Puma and Hoka yep. right now. Yep. Um, Puma's trainers, like I have the Magna, Magnify over there, the second version. And it is it's just a little bit more narrow. Their racing shoe is super comfortable and it's more narrow. Uh, even the Velocity Nitro, um, it's just, and, and the Liberate, everything is just fits a little bit more snug, a little bit more tapered through that toe box. And it's really secure and they, and they don't move but they also don't have a lot of breathing room. Um, and then Hoka just has, they have a pretty narrow space in there. I, I There's a couple shoes Classic. that I feel like it's opened up a little bit, but they're overall still pretty tight. Do, do I, I have... actually buy, I buy wide versions and I have a moderate to narrow foot. <laughs> and I prefer the wide Hoka's. Like I got a wide Speed Goat 5 and it's like the best fit that I've had in a Hoka, um, Hoka yet. I will say the Simpson 7 is probably the widest Hoka I've ever worn. For those who mm. need it, this shoe has a very wide toe box, and I was very surprised. I was like, whoa, wait, does this have enough room? What? Yeah. I'm not saying all Hokas fit super narrow, but yeah, Nathan's yeah. totally right. Yeah. The other shoe that fits narrow, I, Saucony isn't a sup, not super narrow for me at least, uh, but the Kinvara is a little bit more narrow. Definitely, um, definitely. Like definitely. that. So I actually get wide for the Kinvara as well. Oh. Which is interesting. So I think my feet are also changing with all the stuff that I've had going on this past year. Maybe that's part of it, but that's been for the last two years. Anyway, let's move on to the next question. We got two more we're going to try to hit before we sign off today. So the next one, this is from Rob. They're asking about shoe rotations. The question I have here relates to my shoe rotation of five shoes. And he says, thank you, Black Friday. And he says, I'm a Saucony fanboy, have shoes with various drops of four millimeters, eight millimeters, 10 millimeters. I, I've heard that if someone were to ever pick up a zero drop shoe, they should use it carefully to help the body slowly adapt to the different muscle tendon recruitment required by the zero drop shoe. So regarding my current shoe rotation, does it matter if I run in a four millimeter drop shoe one day and then the 10 millimeter drop the next? Does drop variance in a shoe rotation matter? Or again, is it simply that I should just ease into the newer shoe with varied drop starting with low mileage and get the body used to the variance? Uh, definitely the second thing. Yes. Like anything that's new, like even if, if you're someone that's used to lower drops and you switch to a high drop shoe, same concept, because anything that's very distinctly, like significantly different than stuff you've worn before, you should ease into it. But I think if you're someone that's wearing like a four millimeter drop shoe and then you're considering something zero, I don't think that's as concerning, but there's also several different factors that play into this because Drop is one thing, 
But then you have to ask, like, what's the foam property? Because drop is a dynamic thing when you load it. A shoe with the firmer midsole is going to have a very different what's called dynamic drop than something with a really compliant one that collapses really well, depending on where you land. So the, the drop measurements you get are static. It's measured without the foam being loaded. And that's a problem because you will, you might notice this for those who are more experienced with shoes. And we certainly do this. We try to comment on, does this actually feel like what the static measurements listed, or is it something feel like it's different? So a more compliant foam, if you heel strike in a 12 millimeter drop shoe, it might feel five to six. If that shoe is compliant enough because you compress the foam so much that at that position, you might be at that lower drop as you transition over the forefoot that too is going to play a role where if the foam and the forefoot's really compliant, it's more compliant than necessarily the rear foot, that might make the shoe feel like a higher drop. So there's a couple other factors that go into this. So you need to ask, okay, these, these drop shoes, like what's the foam compliance and do they actually feel like this? So um, well, the question is, again, if you're going to have a shoe rotation, the first thing is, I mean, more important than us geeking out is you should have shoes you want to run in and you enjoy, right? Like that's kind of the big thing where you don't run in stuff that you hate just because you're looking for variety because that's probably not a great idea. Find things you enjoy. And if there's a couple different things you enjoy, that's great. Because again, one of the few things we know on um, injury prevention, one of the rare things that if you have a variety of footwear and the study doesn't specifically say what exactly that variety has to be, that, they didn't. They just said two different ones. Yeah. If you have some variety, at least two, that might benefit you. If you are used to that, right, that's something that might be helpful for you. And drop could be that if you can handle that variation. Some people can handle a variety of drops. They have the mobility in their ankle, the Achilles tendon, uh, integrity, the calf function to do that. Other people might not. So that's something you have to ask yourself and find out, can you handle it? It looks like from a little look at what you have between the shift speed pro from like anywhere from like four to 10 ish, it sounds like you're okay. But those, all those shoes also have different foams. So I think it's part of the puzzle. It's a nice and thing rockers. to have if you can handle it. It's not a necessary component because there's other ways to have create a shoe rotation. I think also addressing part of this question is I am used to a four and eight and a 10. Yeah. Does it matter if I use my four on Tuesday and your 10 on Thursday? I'd say no. no. If your body's used to that stress, you, you can alternate back and forth. It's not like this acute change is going to be a problem. In fact, that would be probably a beneficial way to use yeah. a shoe rotation is to give yeah. the very, is once your body is accustomed to whatever the load is, using the variance to your advantage would look like right. that. It would be using one on one day and one on the next day right. so that you get a slightly different stress on the body. Right. So no, that would not be something that I would avoid. In fact, if your body is already attuned to these shoes or accustomed to them, then that would be a way that you can maximize a shoe rotation. Uh, and I agree with you. I think if you think about transitioning, there's no perfect way to transition to a new type of shoe if you're trying to do it for whatever reason, whether you really like it or you philosophically want to agree with some form of shoe design. I would say that if you consider how long it takes for muscles and bones to adapt, you're looking at a good 12 weeks minimum to make that transition happen. So you're, you're looking at months of a transitionary period if you're going to do it in a really smart way because you build strength, like to build strength in a muscle, 
takes at least, you know, eight to 12 weeks. And I, I'm just, I'm just saying that change takes a long time. You got a funny look on your face. Is it because you've done like, something? Yeah, silly all of us as doctors are running or following yeah. that advice. Get, yeah, <laughs> get thrown into new pairs every week. Yeah, no, but I, I think we have done. I mean, I had to do that when I first yeah. started, and I was sent these zero drop shoes. I didn't bring them through testing paces, but no. I used them yeah. so that eventually I could. And yeah. so I think we do now that, but we're now attuned to lots of different variants within shoes, right. so we can handle it. Plus, we're not, at the same time, we're not running in the shoes for, you know, 300 miles. Yeah. Or 400 or 500. We're getting well, our shoes don't last me that long it. anyway, except for yeah. like the Tempest and the Superwise. <laughs> so that's true. Are those your two choice. most durable right now? Yeah. Bonus question for Matt. What are your most durable shoes so far? By far, the most durable shoe has been the, the Asics Super Blast. I have wow. 200 miles on my pair. I need to do a video review. Where is my, where, oh, yeah. Here's, Here's my left. For those who can see this, this is 200 wow, miles amazing. from Super Blast. That's I insane. still haven't worn through. The, this is insane. This is the most durable shoe I've ever ever had. For people so, who are maybe we have a we've had a lot of people joining us recently. So thank you for joining. For people who don't know this about Matt, he has worn through outsoles in less than 20 miles on shoes on yeah, like many 10. occasions. Yes, this is not 10. like a rare occurrence. No. Um it so, you know, 20 to 50 if a shoe lasts over 100 miles for Matt, it's amazing in terms of outsole durability. Um even 50 is pretty <laughs> which is crazy to say. I know. But you so that for him to have 200 heel. miles on a shoe is a really big deal. It's a big deal. I love how that's actually gotten like somewhat infamous where I've had other YouTubers like Go, oh, we love like, you know, Matt listening to Matt because or like following Matt stuff because we know like I scuff my heel. And if I know if the shoe can handle him, it can handle me. Or I forget who it was. Maybe this is be make thinking the world revolves around me, but there's a company <laughs> that was talking about their durability and saying, assuming you don't have abnormal like scuffing or wear patterns, the shoe should last you. I'm like, are you referencing me? Like, is that a or maybe That's I'm just thinking funny. the world revolves around me? I'm like, but yeah, I've I've definitely just had had several companies like, yes, our shoes are durable. And I'm like, I ripped through this in 20 miles. And I'm like, what what model do you have? Can you send yes. us the like the the number? Yep. Cool. All so, right. So let's move on yeah. to our last question here. But that was a great question on shoe rotations, and uh, hopefully that was helpful. So this is our final question from Paul from Amsterdam, Amsterdam, and they're asking they're trying to work on their mechanics and equipping themselves with the complementary tools to avoid injuries. Currently running in the Kayano 30, but we'll also switch back, planning to switch back to the New Balance Vongo V5 as it worked better for him. With that context, they have this question. Something that seems not to work for me is anything that brings premature ground contact. I think I've narrowed it down to two main features, large heel bevels coupled with a higher drop above 10 millimeters. And their questions are, is there any correlation between a lower drop being more stable and the second is how does extended heel bevels that create earlier ground contact supposedly translate to more stability? Do you want to take the first one? I'll take the second one. I feel like those are like the second one is definitely talking about what's called a posterior heel, heel flare is another way of saying an extended heel. Yeah. Um, you want to take the first part? Yeah, I, they kind of go together in some ways. Because yeah. I, I think, and I almost want to start with the posterior heel flare because there's a big okay. distinction between a flare and when that flare is beveled. And I have enough shoes yeah. here, I think in front of me to kind of point this out. So eh. just, so if we look here at the alpha fly, just because that's what I have in front of me, 
you know, the distance between the heel and the back part of the foam is pretty far, probably a good inch and a half, which is a very large flare. However, what they have as well is it's beveled, meaning that the lowest point of contact with the ground is actually about an, a centimeter or no, probably like two inches, two se- or sorry, t- two to three centimeters in front of where the heel is. So that lowest point here of the shoe before it bevels is actually anterior or in front of the heel contact. So just because this foam is back here, it doesn't mean it's going to hit the ground. Um, the, the problem with when you have foam extending to the backside of a shoe is when you have that without an associated bevel. So Matt, I'll let you take it from there because you yeah. got another example. Um, yeah. So this is that, that posterior heel flare, there's more than just, Hey, is it just the posterior heel flare? So as Nathan said in the alpha fly where it actually is bevel enough, where the apex or where it really comes to where it starts of the bevel, if it's far enough forward, then you may not have a problem. But a shoe like the A6 Keanu 30, there's still a lot of a, a lot of foam back there, and you're gonna it's not a large enough bevel to offset that. So what happens with this if you're a heel striker is your heel, your body, your proper perception, your body awareness of where it is in space is your your body is set up that when you land on the ground with if you're a heel striker, your muscles will kick on just before you hit the ga- ground to help prepare you to shock absorb. That is when you land, that is when you're absorbing the impact from landing. So if you have a posterior heel flare, there's evidence that you will hit the ground early kind of before you're ready. So instead of necessarily your active shock absorbers like muscles helping you attenuate forces, you're actually going to be using more of your passive structures like ligaments, bones, things like that, that that's what's going to take that shock. And so it can cause a little bit of jarring and can also what's called cause a premature heel contact. So that's kind of the reason why that happens. Um, Drop, heel drop is something that can play into this, but it's usually separate because you can actually have a zero drop shoe like what I experienced with the Paradigm from Ultra. It's a zero drop shoe, but it's got kind of a large posterior flare and it kind of makes the rear foot a little clunky and gives me an early initial contact. So I would say the drop's a little different personally. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I I think it's an interesting one. And you tell uh, me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I don't remember if this shoe is out of embargo or not. So I'm going to just say that there is a shoe that's coming where the company decreased the drop in the shoe. It's one of their stability models, decreased the drop in the shoe in an effort to create a more stable ride. Do you know which shoe I'm referencing? Yeah, I think the, wait, where is my pair? I think the embargo is. Well, I hope I hope uh, you're right if you pull it out. Actually, I don't know this because I saw another shoe reviewer post it and then the <laughs> thing was taken down immediately, which is kind of classic okay. for them. So let's, so let's be careful just, with this. Yeah, yeah, but I think I think that concept <laughs> and that question is interesting. Yeah. And I think there is a level where it depends on on who you are and what sort of stability you inherently have. If you are in a higher drop shoe, there's a chance, depending on how you land, that the movement of your foot, if you're a rear foot striker, that can lead to a really quick movement down of your forefoot. And then you have to control forward translation of your tibia pretty quickly. I think about, I think that a great example of this is the wave rider. It's 12 millimeter drop. It does have a little bit more of a bulky heel that comes out a little bit posteriorly, kind of a minimal bevel. And so you can have a very fast transition from the heel forward because of that. And that can lead to some 
I would say feelings of instability. Whereas if you go a little bit more lower drop, it's possible that your transition speed due to, but I do think that the, the, the flaring is a necessary part of that consideration because if you have a flare plus a high drop, then you have two things that are increasing the lever arm around the ankle joint. And therefore you're going to have a potentially faster transition due to the external moments where if you lower the drop, that brings the access closer to the ankle joint itself in all of the planes. And if you have a really nice bevel combined with that, that takes away some of that flaring uh, impact, then you could have a, an easier, less externally driven transition forward. And I do think that could lead to some increased stability. So I think it's, I think there's some logic there for decreasing to a certain amount, but if you go too far down, that puts a new demand of stability on your body. Once you're going to zero drop, you do have other demands on your foot that it, it has to handle. And if you don't have it, that's going to make it less stable. So maybe to a point where if you're moving from, let's say, eight to six or 10 to six or something like that, there could be some improvement in stability, um, but maybe only to a point. What yeah, can I expand that? on that a little bit? So yeah. I, I think that's very well said that, as, you know, the extremely high drop shoes without taking in other accounts, technically there is a possibility for them to feel less stable. If you don't, like the Wave Rider is a shoe that, by the way, always feels like it's a stable neutral shoe for me usually because the heel is usually so wide. They use sidewalls. They use stuff that does stabilize it fairly well. A lot of other shoes with like where you have a narrow heel and a high drop, yes, if there's not something stabilizing you, yes, the external moment arms or like a lateral flare is going to pitch you more forward as you try to transition down and load your ankle joint. So to a, to a degree, I think, yes, somewhat lower or more moderate heel drops might be more stable from what we were just talking about. If you go too low, though, and you don't have enough ankle dorsiflexion, so at, when the lower drop you go, the yes. more movement and more extremes of motion is required from your ankle joint or your talocrural joint. If you don't have that motion, if you're too stiff, your, your joints too stiff, your, your ankle, your muscles are too, don't have enough flexibility, then you're actually going to increase your instability because the way the foot works is everything after the ankle joint, all of the joints are in this in basically in diagonal planes or in like side to side. So if you don't have that movement, you're going to compensate by going excessively medially or laterally, which is going to compromise your stability no matter how wide the shoe is. So if you don't have the appropriate available range motion in the talocrural joint as you go to lower drop, that actually might make things less stable. If you do have it, there's a potential it might, but I think it depends. There's an extreme and kind of a middle ground that's going to work for most people rather than just assuming the lower I go, the more stable it is. Right. Totally. I think it's a really interesting question. And it's a great question. I, I think, I think they, they hit on two things that definitely can impact um, stability, primarily that the beveling and the flaring. And I think in a, in a state of running shoes right now that we're in with a lot of higher stack maximal stuff, flaring is used a lot to create a wider base because of how much foam is underneath the foot. And if you don't bevel it well, you, the, that flaring is going to, is going to make your initial contact with the ground different. And for some people is going to cause 
issues for other people it's gonna be like oh i don't even notice that at all and that's the beauty of the subjectivity of running shoes right it's gonna everybody's gonna have a different yeah. experience right. in the shoe this so. this is why we talk about heel bevels so much with the higher stack heights you need to have yep. things placed correctly to have a, a good normal transition so much so i feel like the rest of the team makes fun of me for heel, heel bevels everybody know the the will ferrell thing where like more cowbell and then they make fun I, of me saying more heel bevels so you're literally in my head i was i was about to say i want if we ever get to the point where we can actually create merch for like people yeah. to buy, I want one to say like, instead of more cowbell, more heel bevel, or well, like, that's got, that's or like a got heel bevel with a question God mark or something like well, that. Like, I knew that was be coming because so you, Bach, David, BJ, everybody's made fun <laughs> of me for that. So David, especially. So yeah. Yes. That'd be great. At some That'd point. Yeah. We'll have that merch and we'll sell. So it says more, more heel bevel or got heel bevel. I think that'd be fun. Anyway, anything else on this question, Matt? Not that I could. I'm proud of myself that I didn't go on for 40 minutes on posterior, posterior heel flares, but yes. Proud of you. Yeah. That was actually, I think, my first review that I ever wrote for Doctors of Running was the 361 Meraki 2. Oh, yeah. And like I wrote no about heel, I, I wrote about posterior heel flare, and I remember drawing on my... I took, like, screenshots on my iPad and drew um, torque... I remember that. Yeah. That was my first thing I ever did. And so I, I'll have fun. I always have fun memories thinking about posterior flare as well. Shout out to 361. We haven't tried any of their stuff recently, but they are have finally, after how many years has it been? They are actually putting some heel bubbles on their shoes. So I have, they are. I, it looks they look different. Yeah, it's different. I'm proud. They look different. I would I will say though, they some, need of some the, more work, but some I of the silhouettes better. that I've that we saw in the past, like Spire 5 on the yeah. online, the it looked more beveled than it came. Actually was, yeah. So I'm curious. I, I, yeah, if we end up testing them, I'd be curious to see. But um, it does seem like they've made some pretty overhaul-like changes to geometry, which is pretty cool. So, yeah. All right. Well, thank you all for hanging with us. And for those of you who are new to the podcast, we thank you for joining us. If you are willing to take 10 seconds to review this podcast, it really helps it continue to grow. Uh, we love doing this. It's what we do on the, uh, as our side hustle here. And it's it's a fun one. So we're thankful for, yeah. By the way, we record these every usually every Sunday night. That's how much we love you as we take time away from <laughs> our weekend to plan these and then record them on a weekend night before a work day. So yeah, we love and it's you. fun. Yeah, it we, we love yeah. y'all. And I love you, Matt. So it's yeah, fun I love to just too. hang out, hang out together. So uh, thanks for joining us today and we'll talk to y'all next time. Cool. Cool.